Hello and welcome back everyone. I'm Andy Lichtenheld and this is eMigCast episode number 9. medical student often means being inundated with an overwhelming volume of information, and just keeping up can feel like a full-time job. Unfortunately, we're often so busy drinking from the fire hose, we don't have time to question the coliform count of the water. With so much to learn, it can be hard to separate fact from medical fiction, dogma, myths, and pseudo-axioms. For this episode, I was lucky enough to get the opportunity to talk about one of my favorite topics in medicine with one of my personal medical myth-busting heroes. Dr. Anand Swaminathan is an assistant program director at the NYU Bellevue Department of Emergency Medicine and likely will be well known to you for his contributions to almost too many outstanding education projects to count, including MRAP, EM Lyceum, Life in the Fast Lane, Rebel EM, the new Core EM website, the list goes on and on. Even with this long list of projects, Dr. Swaminathan found the time to lice some dogma with us. Here's Swami's top three EM myths for med students. All right, so I am honored to be here today talking medical myths and medical dogma with one of my personal heroes on the topic, Dr. Anand Swaminathan. Dr. Swaminathan, thanks for making the time to talk with us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's uh, it's it's fun to be here. Thanks for the invite. Yeah. So um, before we get into specifics, one thing that you make a point of doing that I really like is talking about why the subject we're talking about even matters. And so for medical students, the first thing I want to ask you is, why does an awareness of medical dogma, medical myths, why does that matter to us? Why, do, why should we care? Yeah, I think anytime you do a podcast, a talk, whatever it is, you always have to think about why is this important to, to you? Why should you listen to this? So there's a famous sort of line that 50% of what you learn in medical school is wrong, and the real trick is figuring out which 50% is right so you can keep that in your knowledge. The more that you move on through medicine, the more you'll find out that things that you were taught are not true. Often we are taught about classic presentations, for instance, and Amal Matu makes a joke about the fact that classic translates to less than 10%. So if you hear that it's a classic presentation, it's probably less than 10% of people will have that. So I think it's important to look at what these things are that we're taught, what the evidence is behind them, and whether we should be doing them. A big part of that is, is this something that's gonna harm my patient? instead of helping them, if there's not a lot of data behind it, maybe this is actually something that's not good for them. I think I started doing this really because there were a lot of procedures or things that we were asked to do that took time. And there wasn't much data to back up the amount of time that I was putting into doing them. And we're pretty busy in the emergency room. And you're busy as a medical student. Regardless of what area of medicine you go into, uh, you're not going to have a lot of time to waste. So I wanted to look at these things to see which of these should I be spending my time on? Which of these things should I be learning? And it takes a lot of work to look at the original literature and see where it comes from. But I think it's worth it, not just to you to see how you can save your time, but how we can deliver better patient care to our patients. Also, I think that we deserve better. So if we look at the dogma, if we look at the literature behind it, and we expose how little we know, maybe it'll stir, stir people to do the research to actually find out what works. One of the great ones this last week in the New England Journal of Medicine was an article that challenged the dogma that you have to give um, atypical antibiotic coverage for pneumonia. And the article itself isn't perfect. It's something that's gonna change my practice today, 
but it brings up a lot of questions of research we should be doing so that we can find out again how to deliver better care to our patients. Well, with that in mind, I thought what we would do is to highlight some kind of specific issues is go through some cases that a medical student might be likely to see on a rotation in emergency medicine. So let's start it off, get down to brass tacks. So I'm on my emergency medicine clerkship and I open up the chart of the first patient. I click it open and I see that it's an eight-year-old boy who's here with a sore throat. And I look through his triage vital signs. I see maybe he's got a little bit of a low-grade fever, but they otherwise look normal to me. And I go in the room, I talk to him and his parents, um, and I learn that he has had a couple days of sore throat, maybe a little bit of a fever, but no cough, no vomiting, anything like that. And just as I'm kind of wrapping up, the nurse pokes his head in the room and lets me know that the rapid strep test that he gathered and sent has already come back positive. So like any medical student who has studied for step one, I know that you should treat strep throat with antibiotics because it's caused by bacteria. And also, maybe more importantly, because if I don't, this kid is probably going to get antibodies to his heart valves and he's going to develop rheumatic heart disease later on down the line. So what is missing from that knowledge base or what else should I know about strep throat? Yeah, so this was a layup. Uh, when I was an intern, second year, third year resident as well, strep throat this is an easy one to treat. You do the rapid strep, you get a positive test, you give them antibiotics. See you later. I think one of the things that we were taught, not just in med school, but also in residency, is that it's like a 100% thing. For every patient with strep throat that you don't treat, they will get rheumatic heart disease and they will die. It was almost a one-to-one -one ratio. And I think those numbers are sort of skewed, but it's the way, that, the way that the information has been delivered sort of tries to speak to that. So strep throat, there's kind of three different uh, areas to look at when we talk about treatment. Are you giving the antibiotics to cure the disease? Are you giving the antibiotics to stop suppurative complications, so pus developing somewhere? Or are you doing it to prevent these non-suppurative complications like rheumatic heart disease? So we'll take them one at a time. So start with the disease itself. Do antibiotics clear this disease? Yes and no. So strep throat is a self-limited disease. We know this. There's tons of literature out there. If you have a person with strep throat, you give them nothing, their symptoms will resolve in about seven days. If you give them a dose of antibiotics, either you give them the shot of penicillin or you give them a course of penicillin, they'll get better in about six and a half days. So we're talking about somewhere between 12 and 16 hours of faster resolution of symptoms. Now that's in studies that compared antibiotics to nothing. So we're not talking about antibiotics to standard care, which would be NSAIDs and Tylenol, and some people would say steroids would be standard care. So in comparison to nothing, antibiotics seem to be better. When we look at these other modalities of treatment, especially steroids, the Cochrane Review came out with a nice review that showed for every four patients you give a dose of steroids to, one of them will feel better within 24 hours. So we can make this disease better without giving antibiotics. Now some people are nervous about steroids, but we use steroids quite a bit and we're talking about a single dose in an otherwise healthy person. I don't think it's a big deal. So I don't think that we should really be looking at curing the disease. Now that's what patients come in for. When patients come in with strep throat and they want antibiotics. I've had strep throat before, my doctor always gives me antibiotics. You know, I sit down and tell them, what's your goal here? You wanna feel better. So I can make you feel better with something else and it's much more likely that you will feel better with this. If I give you the antibiotics, you'll get better with your strep throat symptoms within 12 to 16 hours. However, there's a one in six to one in 10 chance that you'll get diarrhea. Nobody likes to have diarrhea. So I, I often will tell patients that. So patient education is a big part here. So let's take out the curing the disease part. Let's move on to the suppurative complications. And the big ones here are peritonsillar abscesses, 
sinusitis, and acute otitis media. Retropharyngeal abscesses are bad. It might come from strep throat. We don't really know, and we don't have good literature to back that up. So as far as the separative complications, you have to treat a lot of patients. That's the bottom line. A couple of hundred to prevent a single peritonsillar abscess. Peritonsal abscess are pretty easy to take care of. And I've seen patients who I treated who came back with a peritonsillar abscess. I've seen patients that I didn't treat come back with a peritonsillar abscess. It's going to happen. So if we take that out, we move to the real crux of it, which is rheumatic fever and rheumatic heart disease. So again, historically, the, the literature is really great here. The idea that we could prevent rheumatic fever by treating strep throat came from the Warren Air Force Base in the 20s. And this was like the epicenter for rheumatic heart disease in the country. It was amazing. So you had all of these military recruits in close quarters. Lots of them got strep throat. Lots of them were developing rheumatic fever. So a bunch of doctors did some really nice studies. They were uh, randomized studies. And what they found was that if you, if you took all of the people who had strep throat, about 2% of them would develop rheumatic fever. Not rheumatic heart disease, just rheumatic fever. About one out of three patients who get rheumatic fever will get rheumatic heart disease. But So they found 2% were gonna get rheumatic fever. If they give them antibiotics, they could take that from 2% to 1%. So these numbers are really important. We talked about the way that medical school taught us was everyone's gonna get rheumatic heart disease and you'll prevent all of it with penicillin. It's not really that. It's that a very small percentage will develop rheumatic fever and we can half that number. A 50% relative reduction, 1% absolute reduction. So those numbers are really important to see. It gives you an NNT of somewhere between 50 and 60. For every 50 to 60 uh, recruits at Warren Air Force Base that we gave antibiotics to, we would prevent one episode of rheumatic fever. That's pretty good and I think that's a worthwhile intervention. But now we fast forward 80 years to today Things are very different now. First of all, we don't live on an Air Force base. So that is a, a big difference. And I think people really have to put a frame of reference of the population you're working with. Some of what we talk about isn't going to apply to your population. So for my population, not an Air Force base, it's 90 years later, there's not a lot of case reports of people getting rheumatic fever. Forget about uh, having large randomized control trials. There aren't even a lot of case reports out there. And interestingly, the CDC stopped tracking the disease. So in this country, the CDC, whose job it is to track disease, no longer tracks rheumatic fever because it is so unusual, it's so rare, it's less than one in a million. So when you do the numbers and you say, you know, we prescribe 10 million doses of antibiotics for strep throat every year, not just emergency physicians, but primary care docs as well. Out of those 10 million, the estimate is somewhere around 10% are actually for strep throat. A lot of those are, eh, it may be strep throat, it might be a virus, we'll just give it to you anyway. But 10 million prescriptions, out of those 10 million, the incidence is somewhere around 1 in 1.5 million. There's only maybe a handful of potential rheumatic fever cases out there. Let's say seven. So for 10 million patients, we treat every 1.5 million of them, 1 in 1.5 million will develop rheumatic fever if we left them untreated. So we're talking about maybe saving seven cases. But remember, it's not, we don't treat them all. We don't cure them all. We half the number. So seven to three. And then out of those three, only one third get rheumatic heart disease. So for 10 million cases of strep throat that we treat, we have the potential to prevent one to two cases of rheumatic heart disease. And at the same time, there's an anaphylaxis rate, a severe anaphylaxis rate that's somewhere around 0.024%. So for 10 million patients, we're talking about 24,000 severe allergic reactions. And that's really the crux of a lot of these things. There's always a risk benefit. Yes, I might save a person from rheumatic heart disease, which is bad. Let's, uh, you know, let's not beat around the bush. That's a bad disease. But I'm also going to cause 24,000 bad reactions. So the risk 
of giving this drug doesn't make a lot of sense. The big part of this, of why the CDC stopped tracking it, a lot of people will bring this up and say, well, that's because we give everyone antibiotics. That's why we don't see the disease anymore. And it's really not true. What we're seeing is a change in the pattern of the microbe that's causing strep throat. So the serotype of strep that's causing strep throat in developed countries like ours doesn't cause rheumatic fever or rheumatic heart disease. Now, if you work on a, a Native American reservation in the United States, you better treat rheumatic fever because public health is different there. And because public health is different, strep throat, the serotype is different, which means rheumatic fever is more common. So I have a friend, Casey Parker, who works in uh, Broome, Australia, where they have lots of aboriginals that they take care of, and their rheumatic fever rate is extremely high because public health measures that we have, clean water, clean sanitation, doesn't exist there. So you have to apply this to your population and see if it does apply to your population. But in westernized countries, treating strep throat does more harm than good. So that makes sense to me, talking about looking at an intervention and thinking about your specific population, weighing risks and benefits. I, I think that's something I can wrap my head around. But what about, let's, let's move on and talk about something that's not an intervention, but in the realm of diagnostics. So I'm on my shift, I've got this new knowledge about strep throat, and I'm going in to see the next patient. And this is a 54-year-old gentleman, and he has had a couple days of vomiting and diarrhea. And I look through his vital signs again. He's afebrile. His heart rate's in the 80s, blood pressure 120 over 70s or so, um, normal respiratory rate. And his exam is not terribly impressive. He has maybe some diffuse tenderness in his abdomen, but, you know, no peritoneal signs or anything like that. And, I'm, you know, he thinks maybe he ate something weird. I'm not terribly worried. He has a surgical process going on. But I do wonder to myself, is he dehydrated? Does he need IV fluids? Does he need to have his electrolytes checked, that kind of thing. And one thing that I know, because I've been told it over and over again, is that if you're worried about dehydration, you should check orthostatic vital signs. So I'm going to do that, and I can never quite remember, do I lay him down first? Do I have to let him lay down for a while, and then sit him up, stand him up, wait some amount of time? I can never remember that. So I'm going to go back to the computer and look that stuff up and try to figure it out. Um, in the meantime, what else should I know about orthostatic vital signs? How reliable is it? How accurate is that test? Yeah, orthostatics is a, kind of an old, uh, it's an old test. We've been doing it forever and people love them. In fact, if I asked a medical student to do orthostatic vital signs, it basically meant you're annoying me so much, I need you to go do something for 15 minutes and go away. And the only people that hate orthostatic vital signs more than medical students and doctors are nurses because they're the ones we ask to do them. We don't do them. We ask the nurse. So I'll go to the medical student and go, get orthostatics on this patient. And they'll go to the nurse and go, can you get orthostatics on this patient? So now that nurse who has 50 other things to do because they're way busier than we are now has to spend five, six minutes doing orthostatic vital signs on the patient. So that's really where I wanted to look into this one because I didn't want to waste that time anymore. Even more so was when I was admitting a patient for syncope, the admission team would say, did you do orthostatics? I was like, oh, I'll call you back in 10 minutes because they wouldn't take the patient without those measures done. So is there any validity to these measures? Do they help us? And I think, Andy, what you really want to know is not whether this guy has major volume loss. You know, if this guy's got cholera, uh, you're going to know that he's dehydrated. It's pretty obvious. Your physical exam skills are good enough to see that he's tachycardic and his eyes are sunken. If the guy comes in with hemorrhage, right, he got stabbed in the chest, you're not going to be questioning, I wonder if this guy has some volume loss. Maybe we should sit him up and get some orthostatic vital signs. What we're really looking for is the, the guy who's nauseous and vomiting for a couple of days and, and maybe the guy who's got a little bit of blood loss. So he's a GI bleeder who had a couple of dark stools, but he looks pretty stable to you. Those are the kind of patients that I actually care about. A diagnostic test 
at the bedside to help guide management? Does this guy need to go to the ICU? Can I give him a leader and send him home? What's the, what's the outcome here? So um, orthostatic vital signs, they really don't help us as much as we'd like to. And when I, when I talk about this, I'm not talking about orthostasis as far as symptoms. I just wanna focus on the numbers themselves. So if you stand up and you feel lightheaded after you've had a couple of days of nauseous and vomiting, you're orthostatic, you need fluids. That's all I need to know. If I have a little old lady who comes in with syncope and I sit her up and she says, I feel lightheaded like I'm gonna pass out, she's orthostatic. We should take that into account in the rest of our workup. It's, doing the, it's measuring the vital signs that takes time and may not be that useful. So I honestly don't know the numbers exactly. I think the heart rate has to go up by 30 beats and the blood pressure has to go down by 20 points on the systolic. The reason I don't know them is because I don't do them and I have to look them up if anybody asks me about them. So there's not a lot of literature looking at this. What we find is that these numbers were generated it's not clear exactly how they were generated, but it seems that they may have come from bloodletting of healthy patients. And when we say healthy patients, when we're talking about old studies, we're talking about medical students. So medical students who volunteered probably got paid five bucks to have a unit or two of blood taken out of them and then have vital signs done before and after that process. So that's really where these things came from. So unfortunately, it doesn't apply to our patients because our patients are not healthy volunteers when they come in. But I think that's where a lot of these numbers have come from. Now, since then, when they've looked at different populations, so there's some studies looking at older patients in nursing homes. So these are patients who are chronically ill, but not acutely ill at that time. They measure vi uh, orthostatic vital signs on them. About 50% of them are orthostatic at their normal baseline. When they are as well as they can possibly be, they are orthostatic. This has been done in teenagers as well, and we get similar numbers in the 40 to 60% range. So 40 to 60% of healthy adolescents will be orthostatic by vital signs. That doesn't mean they're orthostatic by symptoms, and that's the important part. So when you look at the symptoms, what you find is that 50% of patients who have orthostatic symptoms will not be orthostatic by vital signs. So this test is neither sensitive nor specific. You can't use it to find all the patients who are dehydrated or have moderate volume loss, and you can't use it to rule out people from having moderate volume loss. It makes it very useless to us. Honestly, you're better off flipping a coin. So if someone asks me, is the patient orthostatic by vital signs? Just flip a coin. If it's heads, they are. If it's tails, they're not. More importantly is stand the patient up and see what their symptoms are. If they say, I feel like I'm gonna pass out, they're orthostatic, take it into account with the rest of your history and physical. For the last topic, um, I want to come back to something actually that we covered in a previous episode, and that's talking about cardiac arrest. So when we talked about cardiac arrest before, we did it in the context of a case, and this was essentially the case of a woman in her mid-50s who had an out-of-hospital arrest and came in with CPR in progress. And so some things that we talked about is how important high-quality CPR is, how important early defibrillation is, what we didn't really get into is medications in cardiac arrest, but I know that they must be important, and none of them are more important than epinephrine. So what can you tell us about the evidence for epinephrine, and, and what role does that play in managing patients in cardiac arrest? So I 100% agree with you that good quality CPR, early defibrillation, these are critical things. These are things that have changed over the last five to 10 years that have improved cardiac outcomes, or at least have the potential to improve outcomes from cardiac arrest. 
Medications, on the other hand, aren't so great, but they're really drilled into your head. Um, are you ACLS certified? Or I'm not. Do you have to be before you finish med school? I don't think so. No. So a lot of med schools you have to be. So in my med school, you had to take ACLS as a third-year medical student, so you had to graduate certified. And if you, when you take the ACLS course, they really jam into your head these drugs. And when the test is given, a lot of the questions are about epinephrine and atropine and amiodarone and all these different things. The truth is there's very little evidence behind any of the drugs that we give. And a lot of them have fallen out of favor over the last 15 to 20 years. Uh, calcium used to be a very routine drug given in cardiac arrest. It's no longer generally recommended. Bicarbonate, same kind of thing. Amiodarone has started to fall out of favor. And a lot of them have been shown to not be beneficial. In fact, amiodarone, not only shown to not be beneficial, found to be harmful because you get more patients with return of rhythm without return of neurologic function. And while cardiac arrest is a pretty bad thing to have, I think what would be worse, in my mind, was to get Roski without return of neurologic function. I don't want to be pegged and tricked. So when we look at this, we got to look at that side of it. If you give epinephrine, you will get more patients back. You will get more Roski. Every study shows that. Um, most of the studies are not randomized control trials. Most of these are before and after studies or retrospective database studies. But every single one says the same thing. You give epi, you will get more Roski. The real question is, do we get more return of neurologic function? So if we go back to the OPALS trial, which Ian Steele did, I want to say it was in 2001, but it was about... 10 to 15 years ago. Um, Ian Steele, one of the great researchers in our field, and what they did was a before and after study. So they looked at um, pre-hospital, uh, out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, they looked at the EMS providers. They looked at a before period when they were all doing BLS, and then ACLS was adopted, and then there going forward, everyone got ACLS. So before and after trial, not randomized control trial, but the best they could do. What they found was that in the ACLS group, uh, Roski was higher. I don't have the exact numbers, but it was considerably higher but return of neurologic function was the same. So if you think about it, what you've done is you've created these patients who are pegged and trait, they have no uh, uh, good neurologic outcome, and they have really no sustainable, no life that any of us would call a life. That's not really a good thing to, to anybody. So that sort of showed that ACLS as a package was not really beneficial over BLS. Now, in spite of that, ACLS is still standard care in the States. I'm pretty sure it's still standard care in Canada. Shows sort of that knowledge translation. And this was published in a real journal. This was in the New England Journal of Medicine. So it wasn't something that nobody saw. It was something that everyone ignored. Um, so we fast forward, and what we've seen over the last 10 years is a number of studies looking at ACLS, looking at epinephrine, looking at different um, uh, interventions that we do. So there are a bunch of large database trials out of uh, Europe and out of Japan looking at epinephrine, and they all find the same thing. We get more Roski, we do not get more return of neurologic function. Not the benefit that we're looking for, not what we want. There are two randomized studies, um, which if you think about it, pretty hard to do, so obviously neither of them were done in the States. Uh, one of them was a non-blinded randomized trial where EMS was told either to insert an IV and do full ACLS with drugs, or not put in an IV and just do BLS. So obviously can't be blinded for the um, rescuer, although it was blinded for the patient because, you know, they're dead. Um, the problem with the study was a lot of these patients, when they got to hospital, were then getting an IV and getting medication. So it was hard to do, but they showed the same outcome that all the other studies show, more Roski, no improved return on neurologic function. Now, the only randomized control trial that's ever been done 
was done by Ian Jacobs in Australia. And Ian Jacobs, another great researcher in our field who just passed away about six months ago. And he put together a study basically going to randomize people to get epinephrine or not get epinephrine for out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. He got a bunch of places in Australia to say, yes, we will do this study got the study approved, and then when he started it, a lot of places backed out and said, no, 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 we're not doing it. I'm sorry, epinephrine is standard care, we can't do it. So his study ended up being underpowered for benefit, but he showed the same thing. We got more Roski with epinephrine, no improved return of neurologic function. Again, the study was underpowered because a lot of people backed out. Now, right now, there is the paramedic trial, which is ongoing in the UK, and it's going to be a randomized, double-blind control trial, epinephrine versus no epinephrine, and out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. Hopefully, this is going to answer the question once and for all about the utility of the drug. Now, um, Scott Weingart and I have discussed this topic back and forth a couple of times, and um, he said that I'm kind of a, a, I'm a pessimist about the drug. I don't really think anything works, and, and um, Scott's a friend, and, and I'm not a pessimist. I think that the drug has a role, but not in the doses that we're giving it and not in the frequency we're giving it. The problem with epinephrine is that it may bring the heart back, but it causes uh, enough damage to the brain by causing vasoconstriction that you're not getting enough blood supply, so the brain tissue doesn't come back. On top of that, epinephrine can harm uh, the heart as well by causing vasospasm, so you may not be getting as much benefit as you want. Now, I do think in patients who have quote-unquote PEA arrest, where they really just have a pulse that I can't feel, but they have a heart that's pumping, that that push-dose uh, presser-level epinephrine is beneficial. But giving 1,000 micrograms to every patient every three to five minutes, it just doesn't seem to make sense to me because what we're getting back is more hearts and not more brains. Now again, hopefully the paramedic trial is gonna give us a real answer. If it comes out and says, giving epinephrine every three, to mi three minutes benefits patients, I will flip-flop because it'll be the first well-done randomized control trial that was high enough power to show a benefit. And if it shows a benefit, great. I just don't see it happening. And I'm curious, so this actually gets into the last thing that I wanted to ask you about, and maybe as a transition, I would just ask you, what do you think, if you look in your crystal ball, what do you think will happen if that trial shows, in fact, what you suspect it will, that that maybe you get a benefit in Roski, but not more neurologic outcome? What do you think will happen in the community if that's the case? You know, so uh, when the Opals trial came out 15 years ago, there was um, not as much of social media and free open access medical education pushing these things to everybody. Um, now we have that. So Ken Milne, who does the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine, often talks about knowledge translation, that uh, from the time an article is written to the time that it gets to the bedside can be 15, 16 years. That's unconscionable. Uh, that's not what our patients deserve. I think when this study comes out, it's going to be very uh, it's going to be very highly played up. I think everyone's going to be talking about it, regardless of what it finds. I think we're going to be talking about it a lot, and I think everyone's going to know about it right away. Now, if you look at ACLS, the AHA recommendations for epinephrine, if I remember correctly, I think it's a level three level of evidence A. I, I can't remember the exact, but it's not a hard recommendation. The ACLS guideline itself says that there is no evidence that shows that epinephrine is better than placebo, but they recommend that we consider giving it. So every time I have a cardiac arrest, I consider epinephrine. I usually don't give it. Um, so that's the thing, is ACLS was not designed for emergency physicians. We have to remember that ACLS is designed for people who do not resuscitate very often, so that they have a guideline in their mind. ACLS is really for dermatologists. That's what it's built for. Somebody collapses in the dermatologist's office, they don't resuscitate. They need something to fall back on. We're smarter than that. So I talked about how calcium and bicarbonate, these drugs have fallen out of favor. 
if you have a guy who comes in and he's got a fistula and he's in cardiac arrest, you better give him calcium because hyperkalemia has got to be on your differential. So we're smarter than ACLS. We can do better than that. So I can look at those guidelines and say, you know, level of evidence for epinephrine is pretty poor. I'm not going to give it to this patient. And that's okay. That's what we should be doing. We should be questioning these things. We should be looking at the evidence and realizing that the evidence isn't very good, which means that now our, um, not our gestalt, but our uh, ideas, our thoughts, uh, the way we've practiced, what we've seen should come into play. You know, evidence-based medicine isn't only about the evidence. It's about the physician and the patient also. It's about all those three things coming together for us to deliver care. Um, one of the problems that my residents will talk about with all of this dogma lysing, all of these myths, is that if you look at everything we do, there's not a great evidence to do this stuff. And what can happen is almost decision paralysis. I'm not going to do anything because there's not good evidence to back up anything we do. And that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is look at the evidence and decide for yourself whether this is something you want to add to your regimen or not. We're smarter than the algorithms are in this case for as emergency physicians. We can do better than that. We should question them. And for epinephrine, really what I'm saying to everybody who's listening to this is you don't have to stop giving epinephrine. But all of us should be saying we need a better study. We need a real study. So when the paramedic trial comes out and it shows that epinephrine doesn't benefit, but people want external validity, we should get a real study in the States, a real multi-center randomized control trial to show that those results were valid for our population. And there shouldn't be any pushback to that because now we've proven over and over again that this drug may not be beneficial and may be harming our patients. Well, the last question I want to ask you is about another kind of taking things back to a practical level level for medical students who are thinking about this kind of stuff, maybe going back and reading some of the root literature. And the practical question I want to ask is, what do we do now? What do we do with this information, kind of given this medical culture where dogma can be really recalcitrant, and there is this kind of long knowledge translation time. And, you know, as medical students, we were existing in this really hierarchical structure. So what should we do with this kind of information and skepticism? And, and specifically, how should we interact with our seniors? That's a really tough question. Um, you know, what, what I don't want people to take away from this is go to your next shift as a medical student. And when you have a cardiac arrest and the attending wants to push a milligram of epinephrine to hold their hand and say, you know, I heard listen to a podcast that says you shouldn't do that. Um, that's not what I'm saying. And I'm not saying that on any of these things. What I'm saying is this should create an inquisitiveness in you. So when you have a patient with strep and you present it and your attending or your senior resident wants to give that patient uh, penicillin, you should talk, you should ask them, you know, what are your concerns for giving them penicillin? Um, you know, you can ask them, you know, I've, I've heard some stuff that says that penicillin is really beneficial. Can you tell me your perspective on this? You know, some of the older guys that I work with will tell me about people they've seen with rheumatic fever, rheumatic heart disease that probably did have strep. These are people from 60 years ago um, that, that really did have this disease. So that's important for us to realize the history of where these things come from. I do recommend that people at some point go back and read a lot of this original literature. First of all, it's amazingly written. It's not like any of the research papers that we read now. Uh, a lot of these are uh, doctors who were writers. They were able to write really well. And the, they're almost like these prose style things where they talk about one case. And you'll find when you go back, a lot of these things came from a single case. So things that we do came from a doctor seeing a single case. So I think it's important to read that stuff, see where it comes from. They really are interestingly written. They're not written the way that research papers are written now. So I think it's nice to see that history. So I'm not telling you to go and question, but 
I think that why is the most important question for a medical student and a junior resident to ask to their attending, to their senior residents. As much as it can get annoying to be the four-year-old asking why about everything, it's important to ask the question to know the answer. There should never be anything that someone doesn't explain to you. Why do we give aspirin to people with heart disease? Why do we give aspirin to people with STEMIs? There's an answer for that question and you should know what it is. So it's the same thing for these. Why are we doing orthostatics? What numbers are gonna change what we do for this patient? And you can ask it in a way that's not the way that I just said it. You know, you're not, you're not, questioning, their, you're not uh, questioning authority necessarily. You're trying to learn more. Why do you think it's important to do that? These are debatable topics. None of this stuff is set in stone. And there are patients who I might treat for strep throat. The brittle diabetic, maybe that's a person that I don't want to give a big slug of steroids to. Maybe they are more at risk for developing a PTA. What about the HIV positive patient with a CD4 count of zero and a viral load of 200,000? You know, they can't fight off the infection. Maybe I should give them antibiotics. There are these questions that come up. I think we need to understand that the literature that we see, the, the studies, they don't apply to the single patient in front of you. You need to really think about that patient. So I think it's okay to question your attendings and question residents, uh, your senior residents about these things, as long as you do it in a non-hostile manner. All right. Well, Dr. Swaminathan, this has been awesome. Thanks for taking the time to talk with us. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was great. I'd love to come back anytime. So there you have it. It's Swami's top three emergency medicine myths for med students. Again, a huge thank you to Dr. Swaminathan for coming on and doing the show. You can check out the show notes at emigcast.com for some references on the topics we discussed, as well as a link to a brilliant deconstruction of another common emergency medicine myth. Thanks again for tuning in, and we will talk to you next month.